Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Grace and peace to you. Um, I want to begin this morning with a question that I know the answer to, and that is, have you ever been on a pilgrimage? Have you ever been on a pilgrimage? Now, I know that's a strange question, and most likely the answer is no, but it depends upon how you define it. Of course, a trip to Israel visiting the Holy Land, might be considered a pilgrimage, and some here have certainly done that. But the point is, unlike most religions, Christianity does not have any official holy sites or temples or mandated pilgrimages. Now, in the law, the nation of Israel and all its inhabitants were commanded to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year, in the spring and in the summer and in the fall, to celebrate various feasts and festivals. To this day, Muslims are required to make the pilgrimage to Mecca, their most holy place, at least once in their lives. Buddhists have pilgrimages, so do Hindus, and there's even such a thing as a secular pilgrimage. And of course, Christians have things like this as well. Uh, When We went to Rome on our honeymoon. Aaron and I made it a point to visit the Mamertine prison where the Apostle Paul was held captive in the last moments of his life. And it was a profoundly moving and spiritual experience. But the difference is, these pilgrimages are not required of us as Christians. They're not built into the fabric of our religion as they are with other religions. However, that does not mean that we are not on pilgrimage. We very much are on pilgrimage. Our holy site is not located somewhere on earth. It's in heaven. Our voyage is not a spatial one to another side of the world, but it's a spiritual one. Pilgrimage is not an occasional thing for us. It is our entire way of life. Jesus has made an end to earthly pilgrimage Because he has made an end to holy sites on earth. In his blood, he has opened the way to the true holy site. The one that all these other ones are an imitation of. And that is heaven. He's opened a way to the true holy site. And so our pilgrimage, as our passage says in verse 22, is to Mount Zion. The city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. And that is the goal and destination of our lives, where this road that we find ourselves on terminates. The city of the living God. And until we arrive at that destination, we are always on the way. We are always moving. And this is the not yet aspect of our salvation. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 24, that we are saved in hope. That we are saved in hope. Meaning, we are not going to receive the promises in this life. In our current existence. The reward lies at the end of the road, that is, through death. And if we are to have that reward, we must Endure. 
I have fought the good fight, the Apostle Paul says. I have finished the course and I have kept the faith. Thus, in this life, we must keep on keeping on. Encouraging one another, holding on to one another, not forsaking our assembly together until we reach the city that is to come. We are always on the way. We are always moving. Therefore, we must always be encouraging each other, spurring one, on, one another on to love and good works. So this is the not yet aspect of salvation. We are saved in hope. We're looking forward to it. It has not yet come to us. But that's also what makes our passage, Hebrews 12, 18 through 24, stand out. Because in it, this not yet aspect, this waiting, this looking forward, totally disappears. And the author speaks to us as though we have already arrived at our destination. Again, verse 22, you have come, he says, to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come. In the Greek, it's the perfect tense, meaning you're there and you're there to stay. So, are we on the way? Are we still traveling toward our destination, or have we arrived? Which is it? Well, of course, the answer is both. We are strangers and exiles on earth with no lasting home. But there are places and times where the heavenly city, where our destination is closer to us than what we might imagine. Now, what are those times and places where it seems we're already at the end of the road? The answer is, and the subject of our sermon this morning, is when we come together as a church. In our assembly, what happens Here, we cut the line, so to speak, to arrive at the destination ahead of time, making it possible to say, not that you are on the way, but that you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. And so our gathering is supposed to be a foretaste a participation of that great gathering of all God's people at the end of history. What this is is supposed to be a taste of the end, a little bit of what's to come here and now. And that end time gathering comes to us now to renew us and to reinvigorate us along the way that we might run with endurance until we arrive Not by faith, but by sight. That's what this gathering is all about. And I want to show you this morning how that's the case. What this assembly is and what it means for our lives. But first, we need to make our way through this passage to make sense of that claim. So our outline this morning is going to be very simple. We're going to start with these two mountains. We're going to consider what they say about the two covenants and then the two forms of worship under them. So we'll begin with Mount Sinai. If you look at our passage, running through it, and indeed the entire letter of Hebrews is a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
intended to show the superiority of the new covenant that we currently inhabit. Now, the author of Hebrews does this by, or in various ways throughout the letter, namely by contrasting Jesus with angels, by contrasting Jesus with the priesthood of Aaron, by contrasting Jesus with the tabernacle, Jesus with the sacrifices, and so on and so forth. And in our passage, which is truly the culmination of all Hebrews, the whole argument he's making, he does that same contrast by comparing two mountains. Mount Sinai, where God entered into covenant with the nation of Israel, and Mount Zion, a mountain on earth and then a mountain in heaven. Now, much of this is quite foreign to us. And if we are to understand, we need to set the stage a little bit. So up first is Mount Sinai. And it's hard to underestimate its importance in the biblical narrative. In fact, Sinai might be the most important event in all the Old Testament. Now, certainly, it's the culminating event of the Exodus narrative. Now, we tend to stop short of this. It's the deliverance from slavery that occupies us, naturally so. Uh, the plagues and the miracles and so on and so, fo- so forth. And about Exodus 15, our attention drops off when we learn about Mount Sinai and the tabernacle and the priesthood. It begins to lose our attention. Now, that's all understandable. And it happens to all of us. However, as the scriptures narrate that journey through slavery, what happens at the foot of Mount Sinai is the culmination of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. In fact, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, it's on Mount Sinai. And God says to Moses, Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, When you have brought the people out of Egypt... He says, you shall serve me on this mountain. And when Moses first confronts Pharaoh, he says, Exodus chapter 1 verse 5, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Why? That they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. No fewer than seven times throughout the book of Exodus, this is reiterated. That Israel is being delivered for the purpose of serving God for the purpose of worship. So the Exodus story is not merely a story about Israel's deliverance from slavery. It ends not on the shores of the Red Sea with the defeat of Pharaoh, but with the tabernacle filled with God's presence at the heart of Israel. Exodus 40. It's a story about how God delivers his people and then enters into covenant relationship with them that he would be their God, and that they would be his people. In other words, the goal of of the Exodus, the goal of redemption, is worship. And it's no different for us. The goal of our redemption, why Jesus Christ came to earth, died and rose again, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, is not our redemption for the sake of redemption or rescue for the sake of rescue, or even that we might become holy people. The goal is always that we might be brought near to God, that we might serve Him 
and love and obedience. And if you look at Leviticus, Numbers, and all those codes of holiness and so on and so forth, what's the point there? Not simply so that Israel would be good people, that they would be holy, rather, so that they could draw near to God. They were to be holy so that they could be in relationship of worship with the Lord. Now, upon Sinai, that's what happens. God leads his people through the wilderness to the holy mountain upon which he descends in power and glory. And what we have there upon Mount Sinai and the nation of Israel gathered at its base is the first instance of corporate worship in all the scriptures. There's been personal moments of devotion. There have been dramatic and astonishing manifestations of God's presence. But nothing where all of God's people are assembled before him. Sinai is the first instance of corporate worship in all the scriptures. That is the first time that God's people assemble before him in service. In fact, looking back upon this experience, many times in the scriptures, it's simply called the day of assembly. We find that a couple times in Deuteronomy. We find it in Acts chapter 7. They look back at God's appearance to them on the mountain, Israel at the base of the mountain, and they say, this is the day of assembly. Now that's really important, the day of assembly, because it's where the idea of this comes from. It's where the idea of the church comes from. Do you guys know what church means? Not the English word, but the Greek word. In the Greek, it's the word ekklesia, or ekklesia, and it simply means assembly. It's a term that was taken from ancient city life. You had a polis, that was basically the town or the community. And from the polis, they would call an ekklesia, or an assembly. And that was the citizens would gather together and they would make decisions about the future of the city. They would make laws and so on and so forth. All that it is, all that it means is simply assembly. And so when Jesus said to his disciples, upon this rock I will build my church, this is what he envisioned. Upon this rock I will build my assembly. Now our word for ecclesia, that is the English word church, is very misleading. It comes uh, in about 300 A.D., so some 200 years after the close of the New Testament. And it comes from the word kiriake, which means the Lord's house. And that word was passed through all those ancient European languages and eventually became our word church, which we have in our translations. And it's picked up a lot of baggage along the way. And when I mention church, um, or when you hear Jesus say, I will build my church, any number of things might pop into your mind. For instance, uh, the church can refer to a building. I'm not going to be there this Sunday, so I have to drop my tithe off at the church, referring to the building. Or it can refer to an institution. The official church teaching on such and such a matter is this. You're referring to the institutional structure of the church. Or it can refer to the leaders of the church. The church recommended 
that we do not get married or whatever. And the point I'm trying to make here is simply that our word church has a much broader and more complicated range of meaning than the Greek word ekklesia. And that very complicated history keeps us from understanding the biblical meaning of what the church is, of what Jesus says. A much better word to translate ekklesia would be an assembly or perhaps a convocation or a gathering. And so you'll hear me from here on out using assembly to refer specifically to this and church to refer to everything else. I will build my assembly. So ekklesia in the Greek is a word that's kind of like the word uh, team, right? So if someone told you, you met them for the first time, and they said, I'm part of a team, and then you ask, well, what team are you a part of? And they said, well, I just play in my backyard. You would think that they completely misunderstood the meaning of the word team. Because to be a part of a team, you have to get together with people and play the actual sport. Now, there may be times when some players aren't able to make it uh, or where the team takes a break. But ultimately, the team is a team because they get together, they meet regularly, and play. So in the same way, we should think about what the word ekklesia or church is supposed to mean. A church is a church because it regularly assembles because it regularly comes together for these things. You can't have a church, you can't have an assembly without an assembly where everyone gets together to worship God. So the question is, why do we assemble like this? Why have Christians from the beginning of the church until now done this? Why am I always breathing down your neck telling you why this is important? The answer is because the church is an assembly. This is just simply what the church is. Jesus promised to build his assembly, and here we are, assemble. So I'm sure you've heard, right, people say, the church is a people, not a place. Or the church is a people, not a building. And that's correct, absolutely. But not quite. The scriptures have a word for people. It's laos. And the laos, the people, and the ecclesia, the assembly, are not the same thing. Rather, an assembly is when the people gather together in a particular place or time. The people is the people. The assembly is when the people come together. As the Apostle Paul, I'll come to this later on in our series, he'll tell the Corinthians, when you come together as a church, when you come together as an assembly... That's the point. So it would be more accurate to say the church is a people assembled in a place, specifically for the purpose of worship. Now, the first assembly was at the foot of Mount Sinai. As the first time we have corporate scripture or corporate worship recorded in the scripture. And so if we want to know what are we supposed to be doing here, why are we doing this? Uh, what's the particular order? What's the form? What are the convictions that underlie our assembly? We have to go to Exodus 19 through 24 to get the answer. That's what corporate worship looks like, and it sets the tone and pattern for everything that's to come. Indeed, anytime we find assembly, God's people coming together, we get an idea of what's supposed to be happening here. So we'll go to all those texts later on in this series, but for now, I just want you to understand 
that the church is what it does. The church is what it does. There is no church without its assembly. The church assembles because it is an assembly. And because it is an assembly, it assembles. So the point is not that coming to church makes you a Christian. The point is that attending church is what Christians do. Jesus organized the faith in such a way that this assembly is central to its practice. It's right there in the name. So, returning to our passage, and like I said, we'll come to Zion, I mean, uh, uh, Sinai again and again throughout this series. But returning to our passage, the author wants us to know that Sinai is not the mountain we are assembled around. Not the mountain that we have come to. Instead, he says, verse 22 of our passage, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Meaning our assembly is not primarily located on earth, that is around a mountain like Sinai that can be touched, Rather, our gathering, our assembly, is in heaven, around a mountain that can only be seen by faith. In other words, our assembly on earth is caught up into that never-ending assembly in heaven. And, and, And what is that assembly in heaven? What is always happening before the throne upon Mount Zion? Well, in Revelation John is given a peek behind the curtain, as it were, to see things unseen. And here's what he says. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Our earthly, outwardly unimpressive assembly participates, shares in this great assembly above. Not in the flesh, obviously, but in the spirit. So the contrast that the author of Hebrews makes is between the old covenant, Mount Zion, or excuse me, Mount Sinai, the new covenant, Mount Zion, and their respective modes of worship. If you look at his description of Sinai in our text, he emphasizes the physicality of the event. Sinai was a mountain that could be touched, he says. And from it was heard the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. And so terrible was the sight, blazing with fire and darkness and gloom, that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. He emphasizes the sight, the touch, and the sound of the event. And in contrast, the mountain that we gather around It's not accessible to our senses. It cannot be touched or heard or seen because it's a heavenly 
mountain. And that's the difference between the old covenant and new covenant worship. It's not that their worship was unspiritual or ritualistic. Rather, it was that it was simply earthly. If you read through Hebrews, that's the emphasis he makes the whole time. The tabernacle was on earth. The priesthood was on earth. The sacrifices were on earth. Jesus ascended into heaven, the true tabernacle. His life was from heaven. His offering as a priest was made in heaven. So old covenant worship took place on earth because it did not have access to things above. Our worship, however, because of Jesus, is heavenly. We have been granted access not to the shadow of things here beneath, but to the reality above in Jesus Christ, in what he has done. So in John's gospel, for instance, Jesus, you guys know the story, he outs the woman at the well. Um, And she had five husbands, and the one whom she was with was not her husband. It's interesting, there were five, and then one, six, and then Jesus comes, seven, the completion. Anyway, she tries to change the subject. She tries to change the subject, and she says, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Of course, yeah, no duh. He says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Notice the preposition, in this mountain. And your people say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So her implicit question is in what place, or more specifically, on what mountain can acceptable worship to God be offered? Now, she was a Samaritan. The Samaritans, um, as you may know, were sort of, they they were like uh, half Jewish, half not. They were mixed with Gentile blood. Anyway, they had their own temple, their own system of sacrifice, and their own mountain upon which they did it. So she says, is it on Mount, our mountain, which is Mount Gerizim? Or is it in Jerusalem, upon the earthly Mount Zionai, uh, excuse me, Zion, where one can offer true worship? And now as a Jew, right, you would expect Jesus to contradict her and say it's in Jerusalem, of course, but that's not what he says. Instead, he answers, John chapter 4, verse 21, woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, the earthly Mount Zion, will you worship the Father. In other words, what he's telling her is that physical location no longer matters. Worship from this point on will no longer be tied to a specific or designated holy place on earth. So it doesn't matter if you're in Jerusalem upon the earthly Zion or you're in Mount, on Mount Sinai, or you're in Gerizim, it doesn't matter. Because now worship has transcended physical space altogether. It's now, Jesus says, in spirit and truth. It's in spirit and truth. Hence, the church does not assemble on this or that earthly mountain on earth. This place, this specific location. We don't have holy sites Our worship, our assembly, is on Mount Zion in heaven. God is spirit, Jesus will later say. And we earthly creatures have access to assemble before him in the heavenly 
places. And that what, that's what makes the new covenant sealed in the blood of Jesus superior to the old covenant and indeed all other religions. That's all shadows. All these earthly holy sites are shadows. And we don't need holy sites on earth because in Jesus, we have been welcomed into the true holy site in heaven. That's why physical location doesn't matter for us. When we gather, we gather in heaven, the true meeting place of God's people. And so the author of Hebrews will continue, verse 24, by saying that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. The mediator of a new covenant. Now I'm going to elaborate more on this next week. And I'll fill in the details a little bit. But it's through Jesus' sacrifice, made not on a temple on earth, not in the tabernacle, not in Herod's temple, but in the true temple in heaven, where God's presence actually is. It's that sacrifice that makes a way for us to assemble in the city above, that our worship would be there, not here. So in the flesh, we are assembled in Los Lunas, off of 314, in a metal building. But in the spirit, we are assembled in the heavenly Jerusalem. We are gathered even now before the triune God, before myriads of angels, before the spirits of the righteous made perfect, along with our brothers and sisters scattered across the earth, made possible by Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And that's the second distinction between the old covenant and new covenant worship. Even though it seemed upon Mount Sinai that the divine presence was closer to them, it in fact was further away. Their access was heavily restricted. Though Israel was assembled around the mountain, they were forbidden from touching it. Exodus 19.12, the Lord says, Do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Now, assembled around the mountain, Israel saw and heard things that we never will. Yet the sight and the sound of those things repelled them. They begged Moses. They said, tell God not to speak to us anymore or we're going to die. We don't want to be near him. And Moses himself even cowered before what he saw. The terrifying presence of the Lord. We, however, have unrestricted access. Israel couldn't even ascend the mountain. We have unrestricted access, and fear is not the dominant mood of our worship, but celebration. Now, it's obscured in my translation, the NASB, but that phrase, the general assembly, right? You've come to the general assembly, is in the Greek, I won't try to pronounce it, but the word means festive gathering, or joyful assembly, as more modern translations read. So he says, you have come to the city of the living God, to the festive gathering. On the heavenly mountain, that is Mount Zion, the divine presence is not a cause for fear and trembling, but a cause for great joy and celebration. 
It's not a somber and austere service, but it's a feast that all of God's people, the elders of his people, the myriads of angels and powers above celebrate before the throne of God in worship. As uh, the prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 7, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. What mountain do you think that is? It says, A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. That is the future that awaits us at the end of our pilgrimage. We are traveling toward Mount Zion, the city of the living God. And it's the future that we tap into in our weekly assemblies when we gather together as God's people. You have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God. So what is this all about? It's supposed to be a foretaste and a participation in the end time heavenly assembly. In the Spirit, through our Lord Jesus, our earthly assembly is caught up and gathered before God on Mount Zion. It transcends space so that our assembly is no longer here but there. It transcends time so that our assembly even now participates in the future the assembly around the throne of God. And it's not only us who gather, but the perfected saints who've passed through death and all the angels and powers above as well. So I think sometimes, you correct me if I'm wrong, we think of our assembly in primarily horizontal terms. We think of what we're doing here primarily in horizontal terms, meaning that this is something that we do for ourselves. We put it on for ourselves. That is, it's an occasion for mutual edification. We come to be encouraged and instructed in our discipleship and then to return to our lives. Now, while that's certainly part of it, it's not the main thing, the horizontal dimension. The vertical is the main thing. Our assembly is not something we do for ourselves. It is the time and place where the triune God calls us and welcomes us into his presence. It is the time and place in our lives, unlike any other time and place, where we are granted access to the most holy place, where God walks among us, and he gives us to drink from the living waters and to eat from the tree of the tree of life. So listen, you should expect to be instructed in our assemblies. The Apostle Paul, we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, he says that, again, many times that the gathering, he says, is for edification. The Corinthians were going crazy. He says, none of this is edifying anybody. That's part of the goal. So certainly you should expect to be instructed, but you should expect more than that. The goal is much higher than mere instruction. It's communion with the triune God in the place of his dwelling. You, you know, this is the only time that we come together with a promise attached to it. Where two or more are gathered in my presence, or, or gathered in my name, I'm there. I'm in their midst. God doesn't promise to meet you out in nature. 
He doesn't promise to meet you anywhere else but here. There's a promise attached to it. And so if you leave here with a few helpful tips, if you leave here feeling better or whatever, but not with the sense of having been renewed in God's presence, then it's failed its main purpose. Here we are meant to gather in the most holy place, to assemble in God's presence, that we'd be renewed and reinvigorated with his own life. I was so moved studying uh, this particular idea by the words of, of one author who was talking about this. He's speaking of getting together for church. He says, This experience is more meaningful to me than almost any other. And here's the reason why. He says, I've lost a wife and a son to death. And he says, unlike many grievers, I rarely visit their graves. I feel no compulsion or need for that. For me, he says, given my understanding of the assembly, I enjoy the presence of my departed loved ones when I assemble with the saints, past and present, on the Lord's day. There we meet, he says, in sweet communion as the whole of the heavenly Jerusalem gathers in festive assembly. There I feel closer to my son than when I visit his grave. It's a wonderful understanding of what it is that we're doing. It's not in a grave. He's before the Lord. And when we gather Our little gathering is tapped into that great gathering above. They are united. And so that begs the question, what's the purpose of all this? The answer is endurance. As we mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, the whole of our lives is a pilgrimage. Here we do not have a lasting city, Hebrews 13, 14, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And the distance between the two is great. And we know how hard the road can be sometimes. And we have to endure to make it. We have to hold on. We have to push through if we're ever to arrive at the city which is to come. And thankfully, when we assemble as a church, God grants us that endurance. That's the whole point of this. We're moving toward the heavenly Jerusalem But the Lord gives us an opportunity to cut the line, as it were. He allows us to taste the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Read Hebrews 6. That's Hebrews 6.5. He gives us the chance to taste the power of the word of God, or excuse me, the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And when we get to taste those things, when God comes to meet us in his power, When that future end is close at hand, then we're braced with the endurance that we need to enter back into the present. Our assembly and the things that are given to us here, the powers of the age to come, are the only cure to a sagging and a fainting faith. Because this is where God meets us. And so our experience upon Mount Zion in heaven is the same as Moses' experience upon Sinai. We'll talk about this later in our series, but remember, Moses was the only one invited to the very summit of the mountain where God's presence dwelt. Moses alone got to enter into the divine presence. And there, what happened to Moses? 
He was transformed. He didn't eat for 40 days. He didn't drink for 40 days because God was his food. And he came back down from the mountain, and the scripture says his face was shining, that all Israel could see him. And so do we. We gather on Mount Zion. We leave the ordinary world behind, and we enter into the dimension of God's kingdom. We gather before God in Christ in festive celebration with the angels and the saints above to hear the good word of God and to feast upon his presence. And we're renewed and we are reinvigorated with the new life of the kingdom. And God grants us his peace and then he dismisses us down the mountain as we carry the radiance of his presence into the world. Like Moses. And men and women wonder at, at, at where this joy and power comes from. We have no programs. We have no theories. We have no smart tricks or gimmicks. We have the presence of God. That's what separates us. And we can show you where to get it. And so week after week, this process continues. Up the mountain and back down the mountain. And in doing that, we are given the will that we need to endure until our road is completed in death or until Jesus returns. But none of this is automatic. Great promises are attached to what we do here, but none of it is automatic. We have come, or rather, we have not come to a mountain that can be touched. All these claims made about our assembly are inaccessible to us in the flesh. These are spiritual realities, and they're discerned only by faith. As the author says at the beginning of this long argument, chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So in purely earthly terms, on a Sunday like this one, where we don't even have someone to lead worship for us, our assembly can feel rather lackluster. But faith perceives the truth, that which is unseen. Through faith, we transcend time and space to join the festive assembly gathered around Zion. So the point I want to make here is simply this. You get out what you put in. If you come to this assembly faithless, you will leave without a doubt, not having taste the powers of the age to come. That is, you leave unnourished and in the same condition in which you came. If you are cynical or pessimistic or apathetic, if you come in with arms crossed, with an attitude of saying, please me, show me, what do you have? If you come in any other posture than faith, you will receive nothing. Because without faith, Hebrews 11, chapter 6, it is impossible to please God. Forever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek them. Apart from faith, you will never tap into the substance, into things unseen. You are left with outer, the outer husk, appearances, and pretense. On the other hand, faith brings to light the true nature of what we do here. That here, unlike anywhere else on earth, not because of the place, but because us, 
Because Jesus has attached a promise to our gathering, heaven and earth meet. Or better, we are caught up into heaven. And we join the innumerable company surrounding the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb. So I just want to invite you, now as we're going to take communion, we won't have music, won't have any of that. So I want to invite you to respond in faith to what the Scripture says. And truly believe that through this we have communion with the Lord. And that He's here, or that we are there, assembled before the throne of God and of the Lamb. Let me just say a quick prayer.